Imagine a dinner party where you can invite six figures from ancient history or myth. Who would you invite and why? Join me and a guest as they play fantasy dinner guests on the Ancient History Hound podcast. Hi and welcome. My name's Neil and this is the first in a new episode format I'll be doing from time to time in which a guest comes in and talks me through their six dinner guest picks from ancient history and myth and the reason for their choices. Before I get to the episode, just a few things. Firstly, if you want to get in touch, you can find me on Twitter at Ancient Blogger and the Ancient History Hound podcast also has its own Twitter now, which is at Hound Ancient. Alternatively, just go to my website, ancientblogger.com. Secondly, if you can spare a review on the platform you listen to, it makes such a difference. And it gives small-time indie podcasters like me the visibility we don't always get. Finally, we do reference sexual violence, albeit very briefly. Now, as you might know, this is quite a common thing in Greek myth, but I just wanted to mention it in case. Time then to introduce my first guest to take up the challenge and give me their guest list. It's Helen McVeigh. Helen was the chair of the Classical Association of Northern Ireland between 2016 and 2021. Recently, she became chair of the Classical Association of Ireland and earlier this year elected to the Council of the Society for the Promotion of Hellenic Studies. Helen has a master's degree in classics and ancient history from Queen's University Belfast. Helen works as a tutor of ancient Greek. Her business has grown and now delivers online learning through herself and her team of freelance tutors across the globe, from Hong Kong to the USA. In the current term, she has 190 students learning across 17 courses in Latin and Greek, as well as ancient Greece and Rome. We had a great time discussing Helen's picks, and I know she really agonised over them. So I hope you enjoy this as much as we did. Hi, Helen. Thanks for joining and taking on what is quite a considerable challenge. You're welcome. It's an honour to be here. Before we start, I've, I've mentioned in the in sort of introduction what you do and how you're involved in ancient history and classics, but how did you end up here exactly? Well, it, it's a, a bit of a long sort of convoluted route because when I was at school, I had intended to, I always liked history and enjoyed history, but I intended to study computer science at university. But, you know, um, when you're a teenager, things happen and um, I just didn't get the grades. Ended up working in hospital administration. While I was, while I was working, um, I did a humanities degree with the Open University, which ended up focusing on um, ancient history and classics. And I remember doing the module on uh, 5th century Athens. And all of a sudden, this was just this studying wasn't a chore. This was absolutely wonderful. I just loved it, really, really loved it. But I remember being on holiday in the south of England and visiting a medieval castle. And I wish I could remember where it was and what it was. But it was there can't have been many ruins left. You know, it was it must have been mm. in quite a sorry state because I remember um, being outside and touching, touching the walls and just thinking about how, you know, what, what had these walls seen? What had happened yeah. while these walls were, were built? And, you know, it was just a, a sort of a magic moment. And it's a, it's a bit like when, whenever I visited Delphi, the last time I visited Delphi, and you've got inscriptions, epigraphy on the stones, and you mm -hmm. can put your fingers into the, the very letters. And, you know, it's like time travel. Because you're yeah. you're touching what those those ancient um, sculptors touched, and it's it's yeah. a link to the past. It's it's just magic. So I completely identify mm -hmm. with that. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. then just to take it down a level. You can also, when I went to Pompeii, mm. look at all the rude stuff yeah. that people either wrote <laughs> or drew. You know, got this breadth of really meaningful highbrow house stuff, and then you've got um, other things that they drew and left. Mm -hmm. But I completely agree with you. You can connect with the sort of physicality and also the emotion of a place i remember visiting delphi and i was just wow i just i could have spent days just sat there mm -hmm. so no mm -hmm. i completely agree when you find it you find it and i think that's one of the key things where people fall fall for the ancient world absolutely and you know it also shows us i mean all those all those rude things in pompeii people haven't changed no they haven't you know no one has people were still the same people laughed at the yeah. same silly things which 
I'd be talking about later with one of my guests. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> but um, no, I just, as, as I was saying, I took my open university degree, did a master's, left work, gave up the, the job and did a master's in classics and ancient history at Queen's University, Belfast. And then I had the opportunity to teach Greek at the Lampeter Summer Workshop uh, in Wales. And I'd always wanted to bring that kind of course to Belfast, you know, this course where people were, it's an intensive course, people are in little nooks and crannies reading and doing their homework between classes um, and just, you know, fostering that 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 feeling of immersing yourself in, in Latin and Greek. And so I, I did that. I thought it was, I didn't know if it would work at all. And I, the first summer school, with my my friend, my colleague, Dr. Kerry Phelan. Um, we had 11 Greek students and we used a church hall for a week. And there was just this, this wonderful feeling. At the end of the week, um, my other friend from Queen's University came to give out certificates. And um, he said that he felt it as soon as he opened the door, he felt that that atmosphere and he knew it had, it had been a success. And then by 2019, we had 35 students learning Greek and Latin for two weeks. And then in 2020, I just cancelled everything, obviously because of the pandemic. But then a, a student yeah. said, would you not consider doing something online? And things just kind of snowballed because moving online has opened up a whole new audience. And yeah. I had students from, I actually had a student from Australia um, who attended a, a day school. Wow. It was nighttime with her. And she said, oh, it's okay. I'm a night owl. She didn't mind. She had her her glass of wine and um, the rest of us are drinking tea and coffee, you know, and I've had students from Hong Kong throughout Europe, North and South America. And it, it amazes me that there's, there's this group of people that we've been able to, to gather together who are interested in the same thing. Mm. I suppose Greek and Latin and ancient history, it's kind of a, a niche subject. And because I did the Open University, I always felt like I was working on my own. I had no one really to talk to. And, mm. you know, it's it's still a great feeling whenever I meet someone who's interested and wants to know more. Um, mm. So that that's, that's really it. Now, I, <laughs> having gone from being um, an office worker, I, I now have a tutoring business with students all over the world and it's just marvelous just a wonderful feeling if anyone wants to get in touch with you though if they want to give you feedback for example on the guests or they want to talk to you about business or anything like that uh, where can they find you they can find me on twitter i'm at classics academy or instagram i'm at hm classics academy and on facebook helen mcveigh and i'm a be delighted to hear from anyone if you listen on this podcast as well and you're also thinking oh okay you normally put up episode notes don't you Neil I do I will be doing for this and I will obviously include links to Helen's well the, the places you can find her as well now we're going to get to it we're going to start off so who is your first pick right my first guest is Odysseus you're a dog lover Neil I'm, you know, history yep. hound. I'm a dog lover. Um, so Odysseus would have to bring Argos with him. Um, mm. And, you know, then all our dogs can sit under the table and be fed scraps. Odysseus, uh, well, some people don't like Odysseus, but he was one of the, the first ancient Greek mythical, would we call him mythical? Mythical characters yeah. I encountered. Yeah. And I, I suppose he's, he's a bit like Homer. He's, he's one of my first loves with the, the ancient world. Well, I like him because he inspires loyalty. You know, his wife, Penelope, showed great devotion. She waited for him for 20 years. And then, you know, Telemachus, his son, surely has very little memory of his father, but nevertheless, mm. he's eagerly anticipating Odysseus's return. And also Eumaeus, the swineherd, he speaks yeah. to Odysseus in disguise and he shows that he's still loyal to his absent master. I also enjoy, if, if you can enjoy such a scene, the scene with Argos, talking about yeah. poor old Argos in Odyssey 17. Yeah. And it's just one of the most moving in, in all of ancient Greek literature. It's, it's just so, so lovely that this, this loyal little dog recognises his master and 
um, well, you know, it's it's one of those things that really gets me in the fails. It gets a lot of people. <laughs> it's one of those things that you think, oh, it's just me. But when it comes to the dog, I'm in bits. Looking at the Odyssey, I know I've, I've, it's, it's Odysseus who, who's my guest, but looking at the Odyssey, the Odyssey is a lesson in how to behave towards guests or as a guest in another's house. So... We would yeah. hope that Odysseus would would know what to do um, at the, yeah. the dinner table, how to behave. So the correct procedure is for the host, and in the Odyssey anyway, and these rules of hospitality, is for the host to invite the guest indoors, allow them to wash, give them a bowl to wash with, give them food and drink, and only then to ask them the important mm. questions, which are, who are you and where have you come from? And yeah. I was thinking back to, sorry, back to poor old Argos, you know, he's so dirty and uncared for that we need to give him a little bath. You know, Odysseus should know how to behave. He meets Nausicaa on the beach. He's naked. He behaves correctly by, you know, covering up his modesty, modesty speaking from <laughs> afar, not sure. Showing... He, he had been in cold water for quite a oh, lot of time yeah. as well. I and he doesn't show any threatening behavior. And so Nausicaa and her maid servants, they give him, they give him clothes. He can go and wash yeah. and they give him food and drink. And another important thing about this, this hospitality, whenever the, the stay has ended, whenever the guest needs to move on, the host would help them with conveyance, mm. would help them move on to their next destination. And that is just what Nausicaa does. You know, she gives him directions to the royal palace, what to say, mm. what to do. And when he arrives there, the process begins again, the wash, the food, the drink, the questions. Yeah. In the Odyssey, Odysseus and his men don't always follow the rules. Because no. if, if we look at the, the story of the Cyclops, they the, so the, the Cyclops gave is empty they go in uninvited and they're planning you know they, they're planning to steal cheese and lambs and kid goats that's not what a guest should do and no. polyphemus returns and he doesn't follow the hosting rules either so he arrives he spots the man he asks them questions first rather than offering the food and the, yeah. the washing bowl but instead of offering food, what does he do? Oh dear, he eats two of them. And that's in, pretty much the opposite. It's pretty much you, the opposite. You can't get much more opposite than rather than offering people food, Eesh. eating them. I know. And it's I'm <laughs> flicking through my my copy of the Odyssey here. I don't know if I can find it, but my translation, which is my favorite translation, is the Richmond Lattimore translation. And uh, I think it it says he dashes them against the wall like puppies. Yeah, oh yeah. my goodness. So it's really it's it's a very gruesome episode, but it, it's mm. if you can manage that, it's an it's a reversal of what's correct to do. There's a there's a sort of idea that the psych, uh, that Polyphemus wasn't represented a kind of uncivilized. Mm -hmm. He drinks the wine neat. He obviously doesn't know how to host. The Odyssey is incredibly geared towards good hosting, being a good guest, and being a good host. It's one of the major themes in the odyssey which isn't apparent until you start thinking about it mm -hmm. and you realize it's cropping up all over the place really yeah you're right it really is it's everywhere you know you've got the suitors they mm. have come uninvited yeah. they are eating everything they're just wrecking the place mm. and they have been uninvited you know and yeah it's it's throughout the throughout the whole poem and it's also not just about being rich and being able to host well emmaus when he hosts, mm -hmm. he says all the right things. He ticks all the boxes. It's quite a sweet scene, actually. Just to quickly go back on what you were mm -hmm. talking about in terms of the dogs. There were dog names back in ancient ancient Greece. And Xenophon, uh, he lists around 47 in a hunting guide. Uh -huh. and they're all two syllables because, of course, it's easier to call for a dog if they're two syllables. And funny enough, when we came to, to name our dog, the question was, you know, what do you want to call it? And, of course, I go straight to all the Greek names. And you can't really call that dog that because it takes 15 minutes to say the word. You've got two <laughs> syllables. And people now, when they call their dogs, a lot of the names are two syllables. So it's a practice that kind of links the modern and the past. Some of the names, I won't give you the Greek words because I'll be here forever, but just some of the names that, that translate for the dogs. You've got strength, sunshine, force, rora, killer, joy, youth, violence, spear, flaming, Bloodthirsty, guard, soul, vigor, rushing, tracker, and bravery. Got a full suite of names there. Fabulous. Yeah, it's brilliant. So, Sunshine, yeah. I love that. Argos. 
So his name, Argos, is it's a an adjective in ancient Greek. Argos can mean shining, bright, glistening. I've got the dictionary in front of me. Swift-footed. So I suppose he's he's fast. But mm. also this word Argos, it's the negative of ergos, which is the, the word that means work. So it can also mean not working. In other words, lazy or idle. So, you know, I, I, hopefully they haven't called the dog lazy. But it's interesting that that name yeah. could, could translate across. And again, little things that you were saying at the beginning, it's about finding commonality in ancient history and, and myth. Those are the things that I find really interesting. And I love mm-hmm. the fact that people had dog names, possibly in the same way that we might have names for our pets now. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And I, I'm digressing again, but I just thought this was a lovely story. That, and I can't give you any references but there is a linear b tablet where the farmer has listed his cattle and the cattle have names and they are called glossy and blackie really which i think (laughs) is just beautiful the only thing i'd say about odysseus is he's great telling stories would i believe all of them probably not but i think he's a great guest because of what you said in terms of him being able to know he knows what's what makes a good guest he knows what makes a good host and as i said he's got the stories so yes he would have plenty of stories but at the same time uh you know we are aware that he sometimes um makes them up quite a bit fabricates quite a lot he has a a more negative reputation in the classical period particularly in a couple plays in philoctetes i'm thinking and hecuba he's not Mm -hmm. portrayed with much aplomb he's not given a particularly nice gloss and i think that is something to do with the fact that at the time you've got democracy so you've got this idea of people who can tell a story can be persuasive and can be tricky as having a political outcome odysseus would be the one to mislead you perhaps or argue the bad case in a, in a trial or that kind of thing in the classical period he doesn't get a great deal of love but in any case that's that's not important here we just keep we just wouldn't mention any of those plays to him but um, yeah, and, and then the, the, the plays were written several hundred years oh, yeah, yeah, after yeah. The, the 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 Odyssey, after the poems. Mm. And you know, for the for the bad rep that he, he does get, you know, people talk about, well, you know, he can't have been that good a general, that good a leader, because he came home on his own, all his all his men died. But really, you know, when we look closely, he wasn't to blame for the deaths of his men and that final test. He told them not to eat the sun god's cattle, but they yeah. did. They disobeyed him. And then they're punished by Zeus, who sends the the winds and the, the crew drown. Yeah, I'm trying to see the, the good side. I, I like Odysseus yeah. and, you know, I, I hope no one's offended by that, but I, I do like him. <laughs> outrage. Outrage on Twitter <laughs> or other social media outlets. I would say that, yeah, he is someone who has, has that side to him. It's worth always worth thinking about this as well. The Odyssey is... Homer, whoever that person or that group of people was or were, mm-hmm. their take on a mythological character and that then influenced the later descriptions and understanding of him. So our take on Odysseus is largely informed by by one instance. I'm not aware of anything that survives prior to Homer, but it would be very interesting to know what those other stories about him were, if there are any variances in his character. But anyway, that's me. Um, that's me going on. Uh, excellent choice, I think. Cracking, cracking guest. And that means then that we will go to our second guest. Okay, so my second guest is Helen of Troy or Helen of Sparta. Why do I want her at the dinner party? Well, for a start, she's my namesake. And <laughs> whenever I was born, many, 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 many years ago, my dad wanted to call me Ariadne. Anyway, they decided on Helen and this isn't connected in any way, but my dad was a newspaper journalist and the editor, the boss at the newspaper was called Mr. Troy. And it was Mr. only Troy. Mr. Troy. Wow. Yeah. Cyril Troy was his name. Yeah. It was the Troy family owned the newspaper. That so is... um, it's, hmm. it's just such a coincidence. That is yeah, there's some name. <laughs> It is some name. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm curious to see what the most beautiful woman in the world looks like. You know, the face that launched a thousand ships. How beautiful was she? And 
Her story has been written about by tragedians, by Euripides and Sophocles, mm. um, and by Homer. And she's in the Odyssey and the Iliad. She's in Ovid's Heroides. There's an encomium of Helen, a praise of Helen by Gorgias. And I've also come across an episode of Star Trek, the original series of Star Trek, which is rather cringy. You know, it's from the 1960s. In which there oh you're gonna you just started it there that's what oh, outrage okay well, I'm I'm a I'm yeah. a big Star Trek yeah. fan um I Next Generation is the the series for me and I am trying to work my way <laughs> through the original series but it's just you know Captain Kirk's overacting and you know oh, anyway so we've got in in this episode anyway we've got these two warring factions I think they're on different planets and one is called the Ellens. And the other are called the Trojans. And they're attempting to put an end, they're fighting. So they're attempting to put an end to the war by marrying an Ellen woman. She might be the queen. I'm not sure. I can't remember. To a Trojan man. And the episode, it's it's hilarious. It's also a little bit unsettling because at one point, Kirk hits her. He slaps her in the face. But the, the Ellen queen... I think she was a queen, was marrying a Trojan to prevent a war, not start one. So obviously right. based on the, the Greeks and the Trojans. But Helen herself, she's a, she's a mystery. She's the daughter of Zeus. And allegedly mm. she was hatched from an egg. And this makes slightly more sense when we remember that Zeus visited Helen's mother, Leda, in the form of a swan. Apparently swans are warm, cuddly creatures. And I would love to see one up close, but I think they're warm and cuddly whenever they're, you know, tied up in, in a bag to go off to the vet to get some treatment. I've, I I watch these shows. Yeah, on TV. I, I fear swans. When I was young, I got chased okay. by one. They don't take any okay. mess from anyone. So I'm not sure I'd ever want to get that close to a swan. But OK, so maybe you know, if, uh, maybe if not so need. warm and cuddly then. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah and, and a bit like Zeus. Yes, we wouldn't trust them completely then. No, but. There, there are so many questions about the the Helen story, the story of Helen, and it's it's a myth, so it's not about finding out the truth. Yeah, the the story is is captivating because we're still talking about it in the the twenty first century. But I'd love to talk to yes. her about what was the real story around her abduction by Paris. Did she go willingly? Yeah. Did she willingly return? Was there an atmosphere when she was back in Sparta after all that had gone on? Mm. But there is. An alternate myth, which we find in Herodotus and in the Euripides play Helen, is that she didn't ever go to Troy, but was instead placed under the protection of the king in Egypt, King Proteus. And instead, yeah. a phantom went to Troy in her place. Yeah. So in that yeah. myth, she's completely innocent of wrongdoing. And she wants in in the the play in the the Euripides play she wants to return to her husband Menelaus and you know she's she's very sad and she she's glad to see mm. him again she's relieved. First of all, if if you're interested in, I can recommend Bettany Hughes' book Helen of Troy. It's a brilliant book. You can read it knowing a great deal about Helen or very little. Uh, Bettany Hughes generally I always find really really good. Uh, now, when it comes to her beauty, you mentioned her beauty. There isn't any description of her which gives us what she actually looked like. No. Which is really, really unusual, but then it kind of makes sense. Because if you think about it, how do you describe someone you find incredibly attractive? You usually just say they're really attractive. You might say, oh, they've got these, perhaps uh, the particular uh, shape to their face, or there's an aspect to them that, that you find mm -hmm. really striking. And the, this leads me to a point that I actually came across whilst walking the dock. And I, I imagine other people have had this. So I'm not going to pretend it's unique. But her reputation of her beauty, it wasn't that of a grown woman. It was more or less as a child. She would have been married at around sort of 14, 15, let's just say. People were courting her and they knew of her beauty up until that point. If, if you just think of it like this, if I said to you, I've got a picture here of the most beautiful person on the planet, I expect you would not think that photo to be of a, say, mm -hmm. of a 12 year old. But that's ultimately what we're, what we're discussing. Helen of Troy wasn't a beautiful woman. She was, her beauty was when she was still a, a young teenager or barely a teenager. This is when she was, according to one myth, raped by Theseus. And then after that, she had all the courtiers 
come and compete for her hand because her she'd been known as so beautiful. She didn't end up with Menelaus simply because he was the first person there. The, the king, he held a competition where everyone turned up and basically competed for her. So she would have been very young when that happened. And I know I realise people might be listening to this and going, yeah, yeah, this is a myth, Neil. And true, it is a myth. However, it's just worth considering that because when we have depictions of her, particularly in the modern period, she's seen as a great beauty as a woman. But her great beauty started, or rumours about her beauty, started when she was you know, mm-hmm. still a child. Perhaps what we understand as beauty isn't what the Greeks were alluding to necessarily. It was more of a kind of ethereal nature to her that was just, you, you just found her captivating. I find her a very, very troubled character. When you said you made the point about whether or not she left for for Troy willingly or not, and that's something that has been used to kind of stick to beat her. If she, either she was abducted, well, yeah, would have been mm-hmm. raped and abducted, or she went willingly. But if she went willingly and you take into consideration her life, and again, I'm, I'm not trying to do any kind of pop psychology here, but you've got someone who's been really, really emotionally traumatised. Mm-hmm. And it's unsettling to to think about all that. When people take Helen into account, they think of a woman who's beautiful, who's just who's got men round her little finger, very manipulative, mm-hmm. possibly. And what what I find with her, and part of that was through reading Bernie Hughes, was that we've got a character who's who's had a really emotionally abusive, physically abusive time of it up until the biggest thing that ever happens to her. I'd love to, like you say, hear her story and just understand it. Just give her some space away from it all because just constantly being judged by everyone. That's the thing she's known for, just being judged on a moral plane and on a physical plane. Yes, would love to hear her stories. And um, I have, you had asked me to think about where I wanted the, the seating plan, where the guests would sit. And I've yeah. actually put Helen beside you, Neil, because... Um, oh, I didn't know I was invited. Oh yeah, you're invited to. Yeah, I'm yeah, So you're at you're at the end of the table. She's beside you, and I've put her beside you because whenever she appears in the Odyssey, she's briefly in the Odyssey when Telemachus and Pisistratos, the son of Nestor, visit Menelaus in Sparta, and the the men are talking about the war and they're becoming distressed, and Helen decides to put a pharmacon yeah. in their wine. What is a pharmacon? Yeah. It's a well, according to my trusty little and Scott, it's a drug. You know, we can translate the word as drug, mm. but it can be a good drug or a yeah. bad drug. So we can translate it as, yeah. as cure, medicine, or it could be poison or spell. But Helen's pharmacon, whatever is, is in that, it makes the men forget what is making them sad. Yeah. So I have put her beside you so that you make sure she doesn't put anything in the drinks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah. No, fair <laughs> enough. Thanks. So I'm there to kind of keep an eye on, keep an, keep eye. an eye on Helen and make sure she doesn't do anything. When you say about the Pharmacon as well, that's um, what Circe mm-hmm. in the Odyssey, she was also a practitioner of that. It's a whole different conversation when you start talking about magic yeah. and things like that in ancient Greece, because it's such a difficult definition to apply there. But it was certainly one of the characteristics of people who are sort of later on identified as practicing magic is that they have this ability with herbs, plants, and that sort of thing. I think that's very, very evident in a Circe by Madeleine Miller, which is absolutely brilliant if you get a chance to read that. Mm-hmm. It's a great mm-hmm. book. One thing I did find out is that Pausanias said that there were parts of her egg that were hanging from a, a ceiling, one of the temples wow. in Sparta, and he saw it. Wow, I didn't know that. I think he saw it. He definitely writes about it. He says, yeah, they still have the egg there. I might need to check whether this st- was still there when he visited, but... Yeah. And it, and talking about Egypt, I think Herodotus said he went and visited and spoke to Egyptian priests who went through the records and said, yeah, Helen was here. Brilliant. So there we yeah. go. OK, so we've had Helen. Who's the third? Right. Next, we have Medusa. Now, wow. Helen is going to be beside you. Medusa is going to be beside me because I think we just need to just to make sure she's OK, really. Yeah. There's a condition of her coming to the dinner. She'd have to promise not to turn anyone to stone or maybe she would wear dark glasses. But 
I think she is, she's misunderstood. She yeah. never wanted to be feared, never no. wanted to be a terrifying monster. And I would like to give her a chance to tell her own story. Mm. So lately there have been retellings of ancient myths. You, you'd mentioned Circe by yeah. Madeline Miller and Medusa is no, no exception. We've got, I have a pile of books in front of me. I have Medusa by Rosie Hewlett. I have Medusa, the girl behind the myth by Jesse Burton and a lovely novella entitled Hear the World Entire by Anwen Kaya Hayward. It's written in the first person as, as is, as are the other, the other books. Hmm. Um, but the, it's desperately sad. Um, I would recommend the novella Hear the World Entire. It's just beautiful. It's beautifully written. And, you know, Medusa doesn't want to be feared. She doesn't want to be deadly. No. Um, you know, up until now, she's this scary monster with a head of snakes who turns people to stone just with a look. They're, they're inviting us to, to sympathize with the girl within. And yep. the myth of Medusa, it's, it's a bit like a jigsaw, as, yes. as are many of these myths, yeah. you know, with little bits here and there that yeah. we're trying to put together. Um, you know, their Gorgons are mentioned in the Iliad, mm. in the Argonautica, Aeschylus, Prometheus Bound, and the Library of Greek Mythology by Pseudo Apollodorus. Mm. But I find that the fullest source seems to be Ovid's Metamorphoses. Yes, yes. I think it's it's certainly Ovid who's the one who brings around the myth I think most people are familiar with. Yeah, just talking about other references there's also Hesiod's Theogony yes that's written, right 700-ish yep. years prior to Ovid and that mm. tells us I have a quote here in my notes it tells us that Medusa was mortal with her alone the dark-haired one and the the name the dark-haired what this translation I think I got from I got it online that epithet is usually of Poseidon he yeah. lay down in a soft meadow and oh my goodness you know when you're in a meadow it's where Persephone was yeah. was yeah. taken by Hades. Yeah. You know the meadow is yeah. is not a not a good idea. Do no. not go to a meadow. Hesiod's uh, Theogony tells us it does tell us the background that she became pregnant and bore two children, a winged horse and a human who were born when she was beheaded by Perseus. Yeah. So really, there's there's not much there. Is no, there? there's just so little to go on. I think that one of the central issues with Medusa is that in the modern period, we're used to the idea of canon. That is, someone has a fixed backstory and that they don't, that there is just one truth. When you're talking about Medusa, you're talking about a semblance of different myths that sometimes overlap. I think it's Pindar who talks about her, her hair, the fact that she can turn people to stone, but he also calls her beautiful. And in the archaic period, mm -hmm. representations on in Greek art and also representations in, in poetry has, has the Gorgons down as these fearsome looking creatures. They've got boar's tusks. They're, they're scary. They're, they're inherently not pleasant things. And then if you go through Greek art in the fifth century, things start to change a bit. And all of a sudden Gorgons are started depicted as more human. And at one point you've got them sort of chasing young guys around on vases. And all, the only way that you can tell them as, as Gorgons is they've got wings. They're, they're sort of attractive maiden women. Mm -hmm. And that's just happens. That's happened within sort of 200, 300 years. And then you throw in the fact that Ovid comes around many years, many centuries after that, and then writes a myth that kind of pieces together and also adds things to it. He's the one who I think posits the idea of her being human who's raped by Poseidon and then punished by Athena, a victim twice over. It's a horrible backstory for any character. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, has driven out people going back now to, and, and saying, well, as you've pointed out, now what do we understand? This isn't a person to be feared. Mm -hmm. And it's really been interesting seeing some of the stuff that's been written, listening to some of the podcasts that have dealt with it. And it, it's quite refreshing that people are doing that. I'm always interested when people take a bit more of, of a different view on things that happen in antiquity and it, you can get some really interesting stuff out of it. And I think to have her in the same dinner party as Helen is quite fantastic because you've got two individuals there who've been judged purely on their looks, mm -hmm. yes. uh, but in very different ways. Yes. Gosh, that's desperately sad, isn't it? Ovid, um, it gives us some background to how Medusa became a Gorgon. It was her mm. punishment yeah. from Athena slash Minerva. But he tells us that she was, as a as a human, she was exceptionally beautiful. Yeah. 
and her hair was her crowning glory. And then, of course, changed into snakes. And actually, in one of those novels, the snakes speak to her and tell her what to do. Really? And it's the snake. Yeah, it's so interesting. The snakes ah. tell her, "Oh, look, look at, look at him." And they, then she feels the power whenever she looks at someone, and they turn to stone. And she gets, um, she sort of gets hooked on the the power, the feeling of turning someone to stone. It's great. I'm sorry if I've spoiled that. No, <laughs> no, no, it. not at all. My relationship with Medusa is that she. I, I'm pretty, pretty sure she's the character that got me into Greek myth because as a child mm. I watched Clash of the Titans and. I loved it. I absolutely loved it as a kid. And I still get the the shiver when I hear the sound, the rattling sound, which is, again, was a complete invention. The idea that she was half snake. I don't really know where that comes from. Uh, presumably because she's got snake heads. They, Harry Housen decided to make her into a kind of half snake person as well. Yes. Um, but I went and saw recently, well, a couple of years ago, an exhibition of Harry Housen figures. And there she was, there the character was, the figurine, as it were, that they'd used. And, I just going to sound awful. I went up to it and I, I generally, my heart, if you could have measured it, it was going <laughs> up. For me, getting into Greek myth was Clash of the Titans and wow. was Medusa because just scared the, the living daylights out of me. <laughs> um, but obviously meeting her at the meal would uh, would be undone by that because uh, we'd be able to have a conversation and it would yeah. be very nice. Yes, and she wouldn't be scary. I not hope. at all, not at all. Yeah. We're yeah. now on to our fourth i think yeah fourth guest okay let's lighten things up a little bit this guest is aristophanes so i have invited aristophanes to lighten the mood i wouldn't want to ask him to tell us a joke because you know comedians they 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 don't like that do they um so i just hope that he would make us laugh hopefully he would be he would be witty yes so who was Aristophanes then? Well, his father's name was Philippos, meaning someone who loves horses. And this sort of name would have been only appropriate to name someone in a family that was rich enough to own horses. So in other words, they're very wealthy. And right. I think Aristophanes, his own name meant emin eminently best. So he was oh. most likely a member of the aristocracy. Mm. And of course, then there's a link to his play the clouds that has the the father and the son and the son yeah. is called phidipides which is also yeah. connected to horses and he's hooked on on gambling he's <laughs> you know he's lost all the money he's bet all the money on the horses we've got we've got old comedy and we've got new comedy there's middle comedy that we don't have any um we don't have any certainly any extant works any full works that have survived but old comedy we only have evidence from Aristophanes yeah. and it's just full of toilet humor and, mm. you know, poop and fart jokes. Yeah, it is. People think and... it's really highbrow. And I think <laughs> there is that to it. Don't get me wrong. A while back, I was giving talks at a college. I had a friend who worked at a college and their drama, it was sixth form, and their drama class was doing, they always do an exam question. It's how is, is modern drama similar? What's the difference between drama now and, and Greek drama? And they didn't have a, anyone, they didn't have ancient history or classical civil or anything at the college. And I said, I'll go in and talk, talk to them. So I went in and talked to the sort of 16, 17 year olds. And it, it, the feedback I got was, we thought it was going to be really crusty. And it wasn't, this is no comment on me. I didn't deliver, I didn't do anything other than just show them what Greek comedy was. And they were, the eyes were wide open by the end of it. You know, it's, it's obscene at points, really is obscene. And people don't always realize that it is, there's, lots of jokes about subjects that i'm not going to name on this podcast because as a general rule it's very family friendly but yeah if, if you think of rude stuff it's ruder than you think most of the time and it's also very cutting he really goes out and has a go he picks people out in the audience that is to say he wouldn't be reading like the front row but if you're a politician of any note or a character of note and you're going to aristophanes uh, and to watch one of his well, watch his play at one of the contests, you, you might you're going to get named, and you're probably mm -hmm. going to get read quite badly in the play. Yes, and that there's there seems to be a lot of interaction with the audience. Yeah, you know? yeah. it's a little bit like a pantomime. Yeah, but not for the young kids. No. Um, you know, you've got comic <laughs> characters, silly songs, audience interaction. Yeah, 
But um, whenever I was a postgrad, I attended for a few days Bryanston Greek Summer School in Dorset. They do Greek plays, they do tragedy in Greek, and they do a comedy and translation. So I was there in time for a performance of Lysistrata. Oh, excellent. And these are all, you know, 18, 20 year olds acting this out. They had balloons, not round balloons, long balloons poking out from under their chinics. Shocking. Absolutely shocking, yes. (laughs) It was so well done. It was fabulous. I just want to give a shout out to my friend, Dr. Cressida Ryan, who was tasked with translating the choruses. She translated these choruses, set them to music, the music from the movie Grace, and it was really inspired. It was it was wonderful to to experience that to be there. It was just so good. You mentioned Aristophanes is the only comic that we have, and it's pretty difficult to judge him because he is the only surviving old comic mm-hmm. that we've got any plays for. But we know that other, there are other comedians or other comic playwrights. We just don't have anything. And to that end is always a point I like to make when you're talking Greek tragedy, when you're talking Greek comedy, you're inherently talking Athenian. And uh, sometimes that can be a bit against Athens. There is criticism. And for example, Aristophanes has always got time to give Cleon a a going over. But it's ultimately Athenian. And I think that's always important to remember that you're looking at an Athenian worldview when you're looking at the the plays that come out from, from Athens or Greek comedy, Greek tragedy, as it were. And yes, just you mentioning Cleon there, he did get into trouble with Cleon, the Athenian general, for slandering the city-state in in the Babylonians. That was his second play. And his response, I think this probably shows too that he he is wealthy, he is from this aristocracy, because someone of a a lower class wouldn't, surely wouldn't get away with this. But his (laughs) response was to then poke fun directly at Cleon in his next play. So yeah. it was it was something that was expected and he ridicules Socrates in yes. the clouds. Yes. That ridicule makes what I'm going to say next quite curious because he appears alongside Socrates in Plato's Symposium. Mm. And he's he's quite a, a serious character. Um yeah. the guests at the symposium they're invited to make a speech praising Eros. And Aristophanes, his is the fourth speech, and he tells us a form of creation myth. And it's actually really quite beautiful if you think about it. His creation myth is that humans at one time, they were entirely round. Okay, it's beautiful, but it also sounds really quite funny. They were entirely round with two faces, Mm. four arms, four legs, two sets of genitals. I maybe. You want to cut that out? I don't know. No, no, no. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna leave that in. It's Aristophanes. You can't. There's no way that I'm cutting that out. It's, yeah, Aristophanes so, be turning his grave. So some some of these two faced, four armed humans are all female. Some are all male. Some are male and female. And apparently, the story goes, they became these humans became too arrogant. They tried to attack the gods. And as a punishment, Zeus decided to make humans weaker by cutting them in two. Hmm. So he cut them in two. Apollo comes along and he heals the cut. And the only mark of the of the cut is it's all sealed at the belly button. Right. And Aristophanes says that this is the human's natural form. It's been cut in two. And so each half is longing for its other half, their mm. soulmate. You know, when you think about even now, people talk about their other half. Yeah, and and, um, and you complete yeah. me. There we go. Oh, yes. Uh-huh, uh-huh. There we are. Mm-hmm. That's where it all came from. It was Aristotle. Yep, that's, that's where it all came from. He does get, you're right about the, the Socrates thing. He's given a bit of grief because of Socrates and what happened to Socrates. And you're getting very much a read on the cultural heartbeat, commenting on society, commenting on the nature of people in all of his plays. And and he he does, Aristophanes sort of lends or sort of targets pretty much everyone. Mm. He'd be a fantastic guest. And I I like the point you make about don't tell us a joke, tell us your insights. I'd like to talk to him. And I I imagine if he, he would have so much fun in the sort of modern, the modern climate, I think he, his abilities would track across. He could write things that, well, yeah, I think they'd fall foul of probably every libel and slander law there is, but 
he would be able to sort of replicate what, what he did against the sort of status quo back then, even more so now. It will be very interesting. Yeah, I think you'd have a lot of fun. Well, before we leave Aristophanes, back to the dinner party, mm. he is also famed for inventing the longest Greek word. Oh, yes. In, well, in ancient Greek literature. And it's found in the Ecclesia Zeusai, um, translated mm. as women at the assembly, where the women dress as men and mm. go to the assembly and they vote that the power should be given to the women. Mm. So at, at the at the end of the play, everything, it's it's very, it's very socialist. The, everything belongs to everyone. No mm -hmm. one has any property. And um, at the end of the play, everyone's going for a banquet. Yep. And so this long word is relating to food it's what you're going to find at the banquet mm. do you want to hear it how many how many letters in this word 170 maybe sounds like you have to do that whilst everyone else drinks uh but yes <laughs> so it's it's not so much a a word as a as an entire drinking challenge but yes please yeah. go for it Silfio Karabo Melito Kata Kekumeno Kiklepi Kosufo Fato Peristera Lectrio Nopto Kefalio Kinklo Peleo Lagoosi Rio Bafetra Ganop Terugon. Wow, fantastic. I either need a sort of round of applause thing going on <laughs> if I could afford it. Or alternatively, while you were doing that, it just felt like I should have lift music in the background. Kind of music <laughs> stuff. You know, ding, 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 you know, that sort of thing. Yes. It's, it's quite rhythmic, as you were saying. It is, it, isn't it? it? Does, yes, it, it is. It has a rhythmic. And that it, was and that, that translates as thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, it translates. So Jeffrey Henderson translates it as I mean anytime a student would ask me what it meant, it's sort of fishy, spicy, meaty, but Jeffrey Henderson translates it as limpets and saltfish and shark steak and dogfish and mullets and oddfish with savoury pickle sauce, thrushes with blackbirds and pigeons and roosters and pan-toasted wagtails and larks and chunks of hair marinated in mulled wine and Ooh. all of it drizzled with honey and vinegar and oil and spices galore. Wow. I just realised it also sounds a bit like something out of Dr. Seuss. Yes, doesn't it it's actually? Got, yes. It's got a real quality to it. No, <laughs> mm -hmm. no. So there we go. That's uh, so. If you're listening at home or wherever you are, go and find that word and just try it out. <laughs> See if you can get it. Get it. I I'm not even going to try with that word. So that's the longest, and that was in Aristophanes. He also had, and this is very, very less impressive than what you've just done. I like the fact that he came up with the term cloud cuckoo land. Yes, that was in the birds. Mm -hmm. um, his attention to detail, actually, and a lot of the stuff he did, it's quite fantastic. A lot of different species of birds that are referred to in the birds, mm -hmm. and apparently the chorus would have been everyone had been dressed up as different a different bird. So going to see him or going to see his his plays was a real visual experience. Quite I mean, everything's being yeah. sung, being danced. You've got these fantastic outfits. You've got the absurdity of the plots, but there's social commentary. You've got all of this. And ultimately, at some point, he's going to reference something that goes, oh, yeah, that's just like the guy who sits. Oh, yeah, that's my, like, that's my neighbor. That is, he's talking about my neighbor. And it's just fantastic to weave all that together. To my mind, is just that's a crowning, crowning achievement. But mm -hmm. anyway, I think, yeah, I think he'll be brilliant for all number of reasons. And now that brings us then to our right. penultimate guest. To number five. And this is Sappho. Ooh. Why Sappho? Well, again, we know so little about her yeah. and would just love to chat to her and, you know, see her reaction, I suppose, with with Aristophanes as well. What is their <laughs> reaction to knowing that they're still being read yeah. in the 21st yeah. century? And Sappho is, she's, I'm going to say she's a little bit like Medusa. She's nothing like Medusa, but what we know of her, mm. like Medusa, it's just a little jigsaw that we need to yes, put together. Yeah, that, and obviously yeah. her, you know, what we know about her is fragmentary mm. and her poetry is fragmentary. And many ancient writers mention her. Yeah. We know for sure she existed. So she was born in the 7th century BC. Mm. That's the 600s on the island of Lesbos, Greek island near the coast of modern Turkey. And ancient readers believed that her poems were autobiographical and that she was mm. writing about her own family. She was, she was praised 
by ancient writers. They they praised her poetry. It was very highly thought of. It's fr- it's frustrating because exactly what you say. She's mentioned by so many mm-hmm. different uh, sources, but at the same time, we don't have a great deal. There's an in our time podcast or in our time mm-hmm. yeah in our time radio show. They did an episode on Sappho which is very interesting. It had Edith Hall in it, who's always great to listen to pretty much about anything. And I think it was it was Edith or one of the guests on there who said that we've probably got about 1% that survived, which is just astonishing. We, we have really s- yeah. so such little of what she, what she created. And that's a combination of a number of events. I don't think that she was particularly popular with the developing Christian church. There's yeah. also the fact that she spoke Aeolic Greek, which was slightly different and it wasn't viewed, well, certainly in some instances, it wasn't viewed particularly well. Um, there's a, a chap called Prodicus who in Plato's Protagoras mocks that the Aeolic dialect because it doesn't sound very good. And I think it was perhaps more difficult to translate, which is another sort of added to all the problems in any of her records surviving. Um and the thing that strikes out for me is a point that I'm not, I'm not going to claim to make this point. It's actually a point that was made on the episode I listened to. And it was not only is it fantastic because we have a surviving or something from a woman writing in the ancient world. She also gives us a view to other women in the ancient world. She mentions other women. She talks about other women and in various ways, in various contexts. So we get to hear and you can you can read a fragment of hers and know that she was talking about another person and that person mm-hmm. is therefore in some ways made visible to us and it's just a, so important because obviously one of the things we don't have a great deal of is sources or anything that comes down from a woman's perspective in the ancient world you know it's like an extra it takes it up an extra notch for me just how how, how crucial she was and mm-hmm. is and I, I always like my, i think i imagine like yourself you live in hope that they're going to find more stuff at some point that oh yes they'll, really they'll find another yeah. fragment or more of her work so she was mm-hmm. really really important out of interest the uh, the Olic dialect is that something you've had much experience with or i i haven't no it's the the vowels were were lengthened they were long right okay. and well, it could have been, it would have been understood. I suppose it's like the, the accents in the British Isles. Yeah. Just, you know, you maybe have to listen a little more carefully. Mm. So it would have been understood. But the, so the, the, I actually have Anne Carson's If Not Winter in front of me. And there are a lot of etas, a lot of long A's in, okay. the, in the Greek. I'm not really sure what else was different, but I haven't, I haven't had to, to translate any of this myself. I know from when I read up on the on Thebes for my, my my episodes I did on Thebes that apparently the Thebans had a particular accent. And I think it's Aristophanes who mocks the Spartan accent in one of his characters in Lysistrata. And in the modern translations, I forget the name. Um, is it Lampito? It might be Lampito. Mm-hmm. The, char- the, the character, the, the woman from Sparta in it, she's often given like a Scottish accent. Or it's written yes, in my translation. It's written in such a way you read it in an accent. And so mm-hmm. there was that amongst amongst the Greeks anyway. And what I'd like the most would be for Sappho to do to do, do a poem, write a poem about Medusa. Because mm-hmm. wow. that would be yes. great. If I could take one thing away, that would be forget a selfie. Just do do me a poem. Write a poem about Write Medusa. Poem. That would be me made. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh yes. Oh, you've just you've just made me think about you know taking photos with all these people. How wonderful would that be? Yep. <laughs> I'm getting carried away. Um, I've opened um, my Sappho again, and that that fragment sixteen is just so beautiful. Where she says, "She who overcame everyone in beauty." That's Helen left her fine husband. Mm. But then, and previously she said, some men say an army of horse, some men say Mm. an army on foot, some men say an army of ships is the most beautiful thing on the black earth, but Mm. I say it is who you love. Then she mentions Helen. But then the poem isn't about Helen. Then she says, actually, all this reminds me of Anactoria. This is a really good example of how Sappho gives us a very brief window into the existence of women in the mm-hmm. in ancient Greece, in the ancient mm-hmm. world, because she talks about them, and that's just yes. incredibly valuable. And in Ovid's Heroides, now the the Heroides obviously uh, there's a, a 
time difference between Sappho and the Herodes of hundreds of years. But Ovid says she wrote poems which were meant to be sung. So imagine her singing these. And she lists the women that she has loved. And there's Anactoria and Caedro and Aphis and 100 others, apparently. Mm. But Ovid, it's also interesting um, because Ovid says, he suggests she is... Well, he says she's old at the time when she's okay. The, the, it's a, a letter from Sappho to Phaon, hmm. the her her love interest, and at the time she's old. And Ovid suggests she's ugly. Nature denies me the gift of beauty. Um, now that could be a side effect of old age, hmm. because Plato in the Phaedrus, Plato has Socrates mention the beautiful Sappho, ah. and. Um, Socrates uses her poetry to answer the question posed by Phaedrus. You know, is she beautiful because of her beautiful poetry? Is she, yeah. you know, we're, we're never told what well, they well, look it's like. A bit, it's a bit like Helen. We, yeah. We've got, if I say someone is beautiful, you're expecting immediately a, a the, the sort of physical manifestation. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. how they're beautiful. Mm-hmm. But what we could be talking about, it's this, the whole idea of them having just something about them that was a bit special you can't put quite put your finger on it anyway so that's that's our that's our fifth we've come to the last one and i deliberately did no research on on this one i so i'm I'm leaving this one completely up to you because i hadn't heard about this individual okay well and anyone that knows me will be expecting this person um this was an absolute no-brainer at no point did i not consider did i consider not inviting Caratone, the novelist, to my dinner party. He was always going to be there in my table plan. He's sitting beside me. He wrote the earliest known ancient Greek novel. You may ask, were there novels in ancient Greece? Mm. Um, we have five. We have five that have survived. Caratone's novel is uh, named after the heroine, as most of these other novels are named after the hero and heroine. So his novel is called Calaroe. We believe it was written in the first century AD. And it's set in 5th century Sicily. Well, it's set in the 5th century Uh BC. It begins in Sicily. One of the motifs, the tropes of the novels, these five novels, is travel. So they they travel about. So there are, as I've said, there are five novels, five novelists, Mm. uh, one novel each, which survive mostly intact. We've got Caratone. And his Calaroe. Then we've got Xenophon of Ephesus, who wrote a novel. It's sometimes called an Ephesian tale. Sometimes it's called after the the protagonists, Anthea and Hebrocomes. Then we've got Achilles Tatius, whose novel is called Leucippe and Clytophon. Longus wrote Daphnis and Chloe. Heliodorus, his novel is, is known as the Ethiopian story. rather than being called after the the protagonists. So Caratone was writing in the first century AD. Heliodorus was writing in around the the third or fourth century. Mm. So we only have five works and they're separated quite a bit in time. What what are these? You know, what is a novel? It's a work of prose fiction. So it's not drama. It's not poetry. It's not Mm. history. It's not myth. And they they have, I already said, they have more in common than just being fiction. So they they follow these similar motifs. There is a romance between a boy and a girl. They're Mm. both ridiculously good looking. The girl (laughs) is often, and I know that's Zoolander, ridiculously good looking. (laughs) The girl is often mistaken for a goddess. And in Calaroe's case, you know, sometimes she she goes to the, the temple of Aphrodite to pray. And, you know, people think, oh, my goodness, Aphrodite is appearing yeah. to us. Here she is. There are apparent deaths in the novels. Uh, and one thinks one, the, the boy or the girl thinks their their beloved is dead. Sometimes it's witnessed. And you just think, how on earth are is the, the novelist going to to work this out? How will the story ever mm. work out? There are also kidnappings by pirates Ooh. and the, the twists and yes, and the twists and turns oh, of no, these no novels. Spoilers. Are, no spoilers. No spoilers. No spoilers. Well, spoiler in that we, we can't fathom how the lovers are going to be reunited, but they always are and they always live happily ever after. So there's always 
you know, never mind what's happening in the novel. Mm. You're you're reassured in yeah. the knowledge that they will live happily ever after. That's good. That's good. I think that's um, that's all. Yeah, because that's <laughs> often half the fun, isn't it? You know what the outcome's going to be. I, for example, I like watching James Bond films. I don't ever watch a James Bond film thinking, ah, he's going to die. Uh, I'm all, but the fun is how he's going to escape and how he's going to achieve what he needs to achieve. So I, I mentioned that um, the protagonists are are always very good looking and. In Caratone's novel, Calaroe has this godlike beauty. She's mistaken for Aphrodite. And in Caratone's novel, he quotes Homer quite a bit. Ah. He said he quotes the the epic poems. Uh, I think the the scene is the the townspeople are talking about this vision that they have seen at the Temple of Aphrodite. Mm. Is it is it the goddess herself? No, it was actually Calaroe. But you know, uh, Caratone says. You know, don't forget that Homer says your your beauty is a reflection of your your inner personality, your inner goodness. You know, if someone is that good looking, you know, they, they may well be a god in human form. So, mm. you know, be careful, be, be nice yeah. to them. What we know about Caratone is very, very little. At the beginning of his novel, he starts the novel a little bit like Thucydides and Herodotus would start their novel, their their novel, their work. Ooh, careful, you know. <laughs> um, you know, Herodotus begins by saying, "I am Herodotus of Halicarnassus, and this is this is my history." Doesn't he? I don't have it yeah. in front of me. But Caratone begins by saying, "I am Caratone of Aphrodisias, uh, clerk of the lawyer Athenagoras, and I am going to relate a love story which took place in Syracuse." So he begins by. By setting the scene almost as though it's it's a history, it's a true story. Mm. But we know it's not. We know it, it's a novel, it's a fiction. Mm. But, you know, he takes this from the historians. Yeah. So that is as much as we know about him. Now, there is evidence of a lawyer called Athenagoras who lived in Aphrodisias. Aphrodisias okay. is on the, the west coast of Asia Minor, but that's really as much as we know. Now, having said that, there are two ancient mentions of, there's a mention of a caratone and there's a mention of a calaroe. Now, Philostratus, in his letter, letter number 66, he writes, he's very, he's not complimentary towards caratone at all. He writes, to caratone, you think that the Greeks will remember your words when you're dead, but those who are nobodies when they are alive, what will they be well, when they are dead? Well, you know, the last laugh is on caratone yeah. because we remember him. Yes. Also, the Roman satirist Perseus, he says, Ma, his mane addictum. Sorry, you don't want to hear the, the my my Latin. He says, let's translate it. He says, to these I recommend what's on, sort of a a, a playbill. You know what's what's going yeah. to be on in the theatre. I recommend what's on in the morning and after lunch, Calaroe. Yeah. So, the the dates are sort of contemporary with when we think Caratone was writing. Calaroe was probably published around this time. It might refer to Caratone's novel. Perseus is contrasting the readers for his satires with the the crude men. That's what he's referring <laughs> to. To these, to these crude men who were interested only in the latest performances and a frivolous and superficial novel. Oh, yeah, blimey, exactly. Now I would disagree because. I think Caratone's novel, and certainly and all, all the the other novels, but Caratone's in particular, was written for educated people. Yeah. Because he, well, for a start, you had to be educated in order to be able to read. Mm. The, there's a, a scholar, Ben Edwin Perry, um, is a scholar from the 1960s, and he said he suggested that. Caratone's novel that the novels in general were for were for women I suppose mm. because of their their subject matter it is a love story yeah. and you know it makes me think a little bit about Mills and Boone I yeah. think Mills and yeah. Boone are actually still around but 
that's I think that's very much reflecting the views of the time, the 1960s, on these mm. on the, these ancient texts, because the the work itself, in order to be able to to read it, you had to be able to read. Yeah. Unless it may have been recited, and there is possibly some evidence for that that it might have been recited. There are lots of recapitulations in Caratone's novel. Um, you know the story so far. Oh, really? Frequently, oh, yeah. Okay. So it may have been it may have been published in installments, yeah. or okay. it may yeah. have yeah. been read. And as well, there are refer- there are openly references to Homer. You know, Homer says, and then there's a direct quotation. Also, there are little bits of Homer in there that don't jump out at you, that are more covert. Mm. There's also some quotations from Menander and Demosthenes. And to be able to appreciate that, you need to know these other works. Yeah, yeah, you need to get that, not so much Mm. the in-joke, but just to Mm -hmm. be able to get the reference. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. As a way of sort of demonstrating how much fun that might have been, there's there's a, a recent novel by Michael Hughes called Country, and it's the story of the Iliad. He's a Northern Irish writer. It's the story of the Iliad, but set during the Troubles in Northern Ireland, set wow. in the, the 1990s. Yeah. It's fabulous. If you're familiar with the Iliad, even though, you know, I, I know that that subject matter is really quite serious, but I find it very enjoyable to read because I was able to to pick up all the little bits from the Iliad. And every time a new character was introduced, I thought, oh, who's that? I'd like to think that's how the readers of Calarui felt. Caratone's novel, I would recommend it to anyone. It's a lot of fun. Um, My mum has read it and she enjoyed it. Uh, You know, it's it's just such a, so many twists and turns. It's such a a, a romp. It's it's a lot of fun to read. You know everything's going to turn all right in the end. You know, take a weekend. There's a an edition. I think it's a yeah. Penguin, Oxford World's Classics. I'm not sure who's published it. I can find out. Um, by Stephen Trashcoma, yeah. and I would I would recommend if you can pick that up. There's quite a few ref- There's quite a few options we've got now now for for books for christmas <laughs> yes. so you've got Betty hughes anything yeah. she's written and you've got um the the irish the northern irish writer oh yes and now, you've got, and now you've got Caraton as well and and all those medusa novels as yes well. the medusa mm-hmm. ones yeah i will stick down in the episode notes that will go on ancientblogger.com i will write down or we'll have in there all of these novels and books um that we've mentioned on this episode so if in case you've not written them down or you've just forgotten about them you can find them there we come to the painful part. Who missed out? Oh, who missed out? Well, I mean, I started off with such a huge list. Okay. Um, it Just was really, it yeah, was quite difficult to um, to narrow it down. Well, Zeus for a start. I thought, I yeah. thought Zeus maybe, but he just can't be trusted. And no, we, no, no, no. We don't know. It's too risky. Yeah. Far too risky yeah. for the yeah. safety of our other guests. Yeah. I thought about Socrates, mm. but I think he would just be a bit irritating. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, Herodotus. Um, you know, I love his digressions. I think he would have plenty of stories to tell us. Yep. And then finally, Homer. Mm. But how many spaces would we need at the table? How many people <laughs> yeah, are yeah. Homer? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You talking one chair, hundreds of chairs. <laughs> that's yeah, that's a good one. You had asked me to think about where they would sit, so mm. I put Caratone mm. next to me. Yes. And I put Medusa next to me just to make sure she was okay. I feel a bit sympathetic yeah. towards her. And I thought, well, I needed to keep Odysseus and Helen apart. Yeah. So they're on opposite sides of the table and they're not directly opposite each other. I put Helen and Sappho opposite each other and they're beside you. You're in the middle. Yes. Oh, that'd be good. (laughs) You've got a very interesting sort of set of characters there. I think there'll be a lot of conversations. And I just want to say thanks again for taking the time to really think about it, because I know you have. Thank you so much for asking me and absolutely delighted. I hope that you continue to do well. I hope your business does well and you continue to share the love of the subject. Until next time and until my next podcast episode, stay safe and keep well.